Hello and welcome to Chats, a television podcast, season 14, The Chatsovers. On this season of Chats, we are covering the HBO drama, The Leftovers. My name is Alan, and I'm joined by a man who has trained for six weeks to successfully turn a key with his big toe. It's Magellan. (laughs) (laughs) Bonjour, monsieur. (laughs) Yeah, do it in French. Do it in French. (laughs) Oui. Ah, the uh, French. The French. <laughs> California. California nuclear back. missile. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty fun opening sequence, huh? I, oh, I thought you were talking about our podcast. I was like, we're still in here. Yeah, I was. Oh, no, it was good. I, was I liked it. I loved the part when I said hello and welcome to Chats and Tell. No. <laughs> huh. Yeah, that was an awesome opening sequence. The uh, Lindelof's writing team, they're just so good at starting things. Uh, and I love that. <laughs> high praise in the final season of the show yeah i think they're going to be good at ending things based on the track record of this season so far but they definitely uh-huh. started things on a bang both with this episode and with the series and uh i'm excited to talk about it but but first of all how the heck are you i'm doing well I'm a little bit sleepy but otherwise oh, i'm doing sleep. all right it wouldn't be chats if one of us wasn't weirdly energetic and the other one wasn't magellan <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll take it. There were early seasons where I fell asleep during recordings at times. I Dead was... ass? When we were doing Freaks Chat, sometimes I would fall asleep. That's so it, it was powerful. My first year in education, I mean, it was a slog, you know. Yeah. I was not not, uh, not taking care of myself, so. I think this is going to be an episode where we're very honest with the listeners, so I appreciate you coming out the gate with that. I'm trying to set a tone uh, here. Yeah, totally. And we'll we'll keep that up as we discuss uh the leftovers. Um yeah. I'm doing well. I started class last week, my last semester of business school. Big boy business. Uh I'm traveling soon and I'm moving soon. These are the things that are on my mind right now. But enough about us, Magellan. Let's talk the leftovers, yeah? Yeah. This week on the chats overs, we watched the leftovers season three, episode five. It's a Matt 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 world. And season three, episode six certified it's a mad 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 world was written by damon lindelof and lila Bayok. it was directed by nicole cassell and it aired may 14th 2017 
Magellan, can you tell me what happened in It's a Matt, 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 Matt world, please? I surely can. In this episode of The Leftovers, convinced it is Kevin's destiny to be in Miracle for the coming seventh anniversary of the departure, Matt Jameson impulsively heads to Australia in an effort to bring Kevin home. Home. Alan, what do you think of It's a Matt, 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 Matt world? This was an incredible pairing of episodes. I say that often, but this was an especially incredible pairing because we got one of the most funniest and thought-provoking spiritual episodes of The Leftovers and followed it up with uh, a rapid-fire series of gut punches. So uh, I think it's a mad, 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 mad world, which I'm going to start referring to as it's a mat or it's Matt's world <laughs> for short uh, is one of the most creative episodes of television I've seen in a long time. I think it's astonishing that they were able to put this together. I think it's written so tightly from top to bottom, first scene to last scene. It's full of magic and wonder and tragedy and realness and incredible performances and uh, this is what I want my dramatic television to be like every once in a while is, is more episodes like this. This was a stunner to me. What about you? Yeah, I think in very different ways, these two episodes demonstrate what is both best about the leftovers and also in some ways kind of impossible to mimic uh, just like what is so uniquely good about this show. And um I adored It's a Matt, 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 Matt world. It's, I think, one of my favorite episodes of the show. It doesn't quite top lens. I think that still, for me, sits at the top of uh, of episodes. But, whew, this one was good. Definitely maybe, well, no, still my second favorite scene, because that scene from Lens, oh, man, so good. But this is, is probably, my, probably my second favorite scene of the show. Is in this episode, I think. So there isn't as I much that's like starkly directed as that scene in Lens in this episode. It's mostly like just like straight, mostly straightforward directing in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll talk about that. Yeah. Uh, this is I, the third. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just think the other thing to say about this one is uh, as we get into talking about it on paper, this episode is bonkers and it's bonkers on screen too, but also. It is surprisingly cohesive, which is, yeah, uh, I think, an achievement uh, to be lauded here. Yeah, I, I texted you during this episode being like, this is the kind of stuff where I feel like the creators are making fun of us for chatting it. Like, all right, you fucking weirdos. You want to do you want to like dig into the themes of our sex cult that makes the guy nut into the the tube so that the lion they can become like the lion. And it's like, what the sex cult? Huh? What happened to my show about the about grief? And it's like, well, it's also that at the same time. Um, So it is really an achievement. But I think, yes, if you listen to this, us describing the scenes and you're like, what is this? It coheres way better in watching it. It, it, it leads you into it really well. Um, so let's get into it. We start with that incredible opening scene, uh, which is, first of all, the theme song is just this guy mumbling in French. I wasn't able to look up what he was saying, but he's like mumbling some sort of numbers and the leftovers casting does, gets an incredible guy to play this like kind of likable, but kind of like mischievous, uh, French I think he's in the French army or he's in some sort of like military service for sure I mean probably the navy would make more sense uh because it's naval 
and uh just to describe it he's in the submarine and he's listening he he puts on he puts in his like ipod nano or whatever like a tiny little apple mp3 player and blasts some uh charles aznavour aznavour uh and gets naked sees a guard come up to him steals the guy's key proceeds to sprint fully naked towards the camera through this submarine as he's getting chased with the two keys locks himself in the nuclear missile launch room and proceeds to turn one key with his left hand and one with his right foot as he unlocks the nuclear uh, detonation device and blows up this submarine off the coast of France, which when you're like, wait, what's the left? Is this the leftovers? That's the explosion from the end of last week. It wasn't the fire alarm mistakenly being called an explosion. Right, right, right. It was actually something that grounded all aircraft for a long time. So Uh what a weird answer. Were you like, this is the thing, right? When people are like, (laughs) shows need to provide answers. What what was the explosion? It's like, well, here's what the explosion was. How did, how did you feel when you watched this? Um, (laughs) well, okay. My immediate feeling, and this is going to be a running aspect of our conversation here. I watched this episode on my phone on the subway. Yeah. And I got to tell you, this is probably the worst episode of The Leftovers to watch on your phone on the subway. I think so. um, Because there's a lot of nudity in this one. And so when this sequence started and the guy strips down and he's running around, he's got his penis out and stuff. And then he starts doing like beautiful you know, acrobatic stretches and the camera's like, okay, let's just scan across the butt here, get a whole look <laughs> at this guy's body. Um Cock and I'm, balls. I'm like on the six train when that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> um so that was like my immediate feeling. But you know, getting past that, I thought this was a a really elegant sequence and in watching it i kind of i wasn't even thinking what is this or how does this connect to other things yeah. narratively i was just going to accept somewhere there's a french guy who's turning the keys for some kind of nuclear detonation couldn't tell you what it's for but th- this is happening somewhere and then it's not until we go and we see matt in Texas with one of his parishioners and the news is on the TV that I realize, oh, that's the explosion. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a classic funny moment of them answering a question with like a bigger question <laughs> that feels even more urgent and they cut away from it where you say, wait, wait, what explosion are you talking about? And they say, oh, the one set off by the nude Frenchman in the submarine where he blew up an uninhabited Pacific island. That one. <laughs> and you're like, uh, okay, follow up. Okay, I have uh, actually seven follow up <laughs> questions. Yeah, maybe more. So yeah. that was kind of a cool feeling because it's like, the, <laughs> I don't know how they're going to do this to wrap it up because these last two episodes, that or these two that we watched, are these beautiful like thematic uh, ends to Lori, Nora, Matt. And they keep introducing in the midst of that new, like practical questions about the world. 
and <laughs> with no interest in answering them clearly yeah they just throw in stuff like yeah at some point Nora's going to be really old um let's Don't see what else it. what else okay there's this guy who uh something blew up and eh, you know we'll think about it later so that's kind of fun yeah and i think what this what's great about this being the very first scene it's similar to how you know season two starting with the cave the cave woman and all of that stuff uh, is it tells you what to expect, you know, it's, and, and what's happening. I, for me, this is the answer that makes the most sense is society is legitimately breaking down right now because a significant portion of people think the world is going to end in a few days. So once you accept that logic or lack of logic, yeah, somebody in the military is probably going to go, Eh, screw it. I'm going to play my favorite song and run naked through the submarine and blow up an island because I can, because no one else will have ever done this and because I'm embracing chaos. And so, like, for an episode that goes on to be incredibly chaotic, I thought that this French sequence, like, set the tone really well and put me in the right headspace to go, all right, society is just in full-on panic mode. Anything can happen. Anybody has any motivations right now. What humanity can we mine from that? And for me, like I said, the expressions on this guy's face are the humanity. The feeling that even though you, this is a wordless, dialogueless scene, it's all music, you still get the sense that this guy is somewhat satisfied that he did this. He's nervous about it as he clutches the button before pressing it. And, and that's the humanity amongst all of the chaos, is that this guy is just like, I don't know why I would necessarily want to do this, but if the world's going to end, I might as well take part of it down with me. And... I, I don't want to say I applaud him for it because I wouldn't do the same thing, but he's very fit and we did get to see another bit of Pangus and there's not enough male Pangus <laughs> on HBO. So that's yeah. how I felt about it. And it gives us a fun moment to see how John and uh, Matt and Michael react to it because we learn the guy, <laughs> there's this funny exchange where he did all this because he thought there was a sea monster with seven heads in this island like in the book of revelations and matt jameson is like ah revelations it's all supposed to be like metaphorical Metaphor. you're not supposed to take it literally and laurie's <laughs> like okay but the parts that you take literally you're supposed to do that and he's like yeah obviously i'm doing the right version of this doomsday thing and this guy's doing the wrong version did and that exchange happen in this episode or in the second one Pretty sure it was this one. Okay. I remember yeah. the scene you're talking about. And I loved it. And yeah, he, he's just like, it makes sense when I do it. But wait, does it? And again, if you want to say, like, why does this submarine scene exist? It puts Matt's question, uh, Matt's faith into question, which is what the rest of the episode is about. Is, you know, what kind of person do you become when you define your entire life by your suffering and what you give to a higher power? And what are you left with when that higher power uh, mocks you openly? <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. really heavy stuff here, but also deeply funny, which is what I absolutely adore about The Leftovers Season 3, is that it always maintains a sense of humor amongst, like, the bleakest parts of humanity, you know? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so, let's get Matt and company onto this boat. Uh, he, he brought a casserole for a guy named Arturo and brought him $20,000 to go to Ar- Australia for the anniversary. Uh, this is where the biblical references start coming up a lot. You know, uh-huh. 
They're uh-huh. kind of all over the place. Matt continues to be Job, especially at the end of this episode. He's all the way Job, talking to God and whatnot. But also, he mentions, like, oh, we're the sort of the three wise men. And, like, a man is going to, like, transport us to the holy promised land. And we're, like, you know, but she's a woman. So, like, is she Mary Magdalene? And they dig even more into that in the second episode. And I think while it is corny and, like, let me put those symbolic pieces together, what works is that the characters keep referencing it and being, like, it's symbolic, isn't it? And it's like they're meaning making once again. It feels like they are on a holy quest, but really they're just going to pick up their their friend in mm-hmm. Australia, you know? Right. Yeah, I think this and the next episode, and I'm sure the ones that follow, uh, what I like about them is they're the leftovers isn't just doing a sort of straight like there's a messiah figure and there's weird stuff going on. It's doing a version of that story where all of the characters, like you're saying, are in a meta way telling that story about themselves. And we can Mm -hmm. watch people do that and critique that and wonder what leads someone to attach their experience to these stories. Is that accurate? Is that a good way to interact with the world? What does that leave out or obscure? I really like how these episodes go about asking those questions yeah and and they do it in a way that's not too hammy you know people often on the internet will find like this type of symbolism or metaphor or allegory in television without it being necessarily in the forefront uh and they'll be like oh this is actually a christ metaphor this is a blank metaphor and the leftovers is like no we're gonna tell you what metaphor it is i don't know how legit that is but we're just gonna say it we're, we think we're doing a Three Kings thing here. Maybe we're not. Maybe we're just sad and trying to make sense of things. Because that's what these people online are doing, right? Is they're saying, like, it has to be a metaphor. It has to mean something. When mm-hmm. at the end of the day, you're just watching entertainment. And you can put whatever meaning you want into it. Uh, but, yeah, I, I thought all that stuff was, like, pretty clever. on the, the Humming under the background of this episode. Um, And so Lori, John, and Michael are coming. And Lori kind of has a little bit of back and forth with Matt. And we learned that the only way that this plane can land is if it lands in ta- the island of Tasmania and that they have to take a, a boat to Melbourne, uh, which is going to be about 11 hours. Um, I went into this episode knowing from that Alan Sapolon podcast that spoiled some of the leftovers for me by choice that there was a boat scene that was apparently one of the better things in this show. And it turned out there was basically a boat episode, um, <laughs> which is mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. I w- I, as soon as they were like, oh, people rented out this whole boat, I didn't even need you to tell me it was a sex boat. I was like, my oh, brain yeah. just clicked that oh, together. Yeah. I'm like, boat. of course. Yeah. What 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 other kind of boat, do, what other like group of people rent out a whole boat like the day before the apocalypse? Um, and the people don't let Matt on because they realize he's a man of religion unless he can deliver, tell them the filthiest joke that he knows, <laughs> which I don't feel comfortable repeating. No, 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 no. It's it's a lot because um, what's great too is that Lori jumps in she's like i have one and the lady's like no right. no no, we need matt to do it because he's the he's the religious guy right uh this is going to be him going on a boat like an odyssey of sorts and testing his faith uh-huh. he says this because wild wild joke yeah because the the thing that the first thing that the woman says who's checking the list is no you can't come on there's going to be sex on this boat there's going to be a lot of it and then she goes on to explain in more detail what she means by that. Yeah. Um, it was an interesting choice for Matt to not only tell 
an incredibly dirty joke, like a really uh, upsetting, inappropriate joke. But to tell one that involved a priest, like that felt like an intentional choice of saying, look, I'm like really debasing myself right now to tell this terrible joke, Um, which I, I thought was interesting. And then that wins her over pretty much immediately. And she lays out the rules of the of the sex cult boat, which include the lady has free reign. Uh, yep. So, you know, whatever that means. And then when midnight comes, let no man mention his name lest he become him. And she's talking about Frasier. The sensuous lion. And this was... Learning that this was real was awesome. <laughs> it's so it's fully real. So yeah, provide some background it, for folks. They explain it in the episode later, but essentially, uh, I've got this short article from the AV Club that I linked in my notes. That maybe Alan, you could include in the yeah. in the show notes. Sure. Um, and it's I think it was written because of the leftovers episode. This is from twenty twenty, so it's like calling back to the leftovers episode. Mm-hmm. Um so essentially Fraser the Lion was an early seventies sex icon, um, famed for spending his retirement years banging his way into scientific history, is how the article starts. Um and then the story goes that there was this like group of lionesses who just weren't mating with any of the these younger healthier lions and then they bring in fraser who's like incredibly old the song goes that he's 91 and he ends up in less than 18 months fathering 35 cubs with these lionesses um and uh he becomes a yeah sex sex icon there's the song about him there's a movie i guess the leftovers episode lots of stuff so just like a weird pop culture moment from the, from yeah. the 70s i love to, i love to learn from my tv shows and to learn about yeah. fraser the sex lion is is great and like that people sincerely worship him in a way or like see him as this like yeah sex icon uh and and to have a song about it and like the song the episode i i, I was like freaking out cuz i saw that the episode opened with the song and I was like wait that's so or it was like when they're on the boat and I was like that's wait why are the lyrics relevant what are they talking about yeah right that's what made me look it up yeah 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 to my understanding in reading like interviews about this episode in preparation uh (laughs) this is hilarious Lindelof and company like worked backwards to get to that like they knew it was going to be a sex thing boat and they knew in some way they wanted to involve a lion uh, and so somebody Googled, and I quote, they said, I Googled sex lion. And that's no what we learned about. Yes. That's awesome. I, they learned who Frasier was and then worked the story around it. That's uh, incredible. Perfect. I mean, you can kind of tell that this episode is built backwards from the very last moment where yes. the lion mauls the guy. Like that so clearly feels like. We got here. Yeah, we, we have we, to we get here. Story. And we're going to do a bunch of stuff to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really a fun piece of trivia. <laughs> and it's a, it's a cool way to write an episode. You know, I don't want every episode of every show to be like that, but it's a, it's a fun way to do it. Yeah. Um, and so, like, long story short, this episode ends up being about, or everything on the boat, rather, is about Matt realizing, like, 
his religion is under is is being confronted and his faith is being confronted why do you feel so strongly what is the benefit of suffering and making this so hard for yourself just like he's been doing in in this now it's a trilogy of matt jameson episodes two boats in a helicopter no room at the inn and it's a mad 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 world are they, they form this sort of picture of like matt as someone who can only live his life if his suffering means something like we talked about way back in season one and if it doesn't mean something then like what's even to live for and this episode kind of like strips him of all of that meaning and you're left with like a a different person by the end of it i felt like like a different character entirely uh and on the way there he you know is like cruel to a lot of people and sees a murder and questions god and thinks he and and questions so many things about life and also we learn things about his past and all of this is just condensed in a like beautiful like on this boat i just love seeing all the scenes on the boat cuz it's it's like a beautiful setting i think to uh to to film something like this it's very isolated and you can also tell another one of the interviews i read was that um I think it was Patrick Somerville said they really, really desperately wanted to do like an Agatha Christie murder mystery on this show and they couldn't fit it in anywhere else. And so they were like, let's just put a murder mystery in the Matt Jameson episode, which is how we get the story of David. Uh, David in the lion's den, if you will, Magellan, because the biblical references don't stop. Oh. Did you get it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, uh, John is telling Matt at one point to accept, hey, you're not in control. And they kind of like lob things back and forth at each other. Like, oh, you, you're worrying about your daughter and I'm worrying about my life and my wife left me and that fuck you. There's a lot of tension here between John and Matt and Lori. Uh, but Matt and Lori and uh, Michael are mostly sitting in the back of this like boat, trying not to engage with anybody and just kind of enjoying the, the, the chaos of it. Uh, I, Matt runs into David, the man with the red hat, who is going around claiming that he's God. And before Matt realizes that, the guy says, oh, because he has a bloody nose. Matt's nose is bleeding a lot for some reason. Uh, the guy goes, oh, God hit you, eh? He's like, what the? No, what? God doesn't hit people. No, this isn't good. No. <laughs> you can't. You're seeing him start to crack here. And the red hat man is David Burton, who we've heard about since season two. We saw Whisper Something Mysterious to Kevin last season. I don't think. Oh, yeah, it's that David Burton. Okay. I honestly thought we were gonna see him sooner, and uh, just to the whispering of it, I don't think we're gonna. I think if anything, all that whisper was was him saying, "I'm God." That's like what I'm going uh, to assume that was. Interesting. Because uh, he was in the afterlife too. So we, the viewer, um, have reasons to believe that David has some sort of power, maybe. Right. Or maybe he's just a sociopath and likes to make people and is, uh, you know, just causing problems for the sake of it. Hmm. Who can say? That's the point of the episode. It's the point of the series, right? And something I picked up on, I wonder what you think about this, is is Matt is, like, mad about David's g claiming to be God. He hands him this card or right. he gets a card from someone. Incredible card. It's basically, like, his FAQ of being <laughs> God. Like, yeah, you know... I don't remember the stuff that's on it, but it's like a really. I was a decathlete, and uh, you right, guys. Right, right, right. Uh, I the wasn't one... born there. Hammer throw is the one that you're forgetting right now. It was funny. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. Yeah. In the in the decathlon, uh, 
Do you know what this card is based on from that same interview that I read? No, what's that? Um, so Tom F. Wilson, the actor who played Biff Tannen in Back to the Future, uh, uh-huh. has a business card that answers all of your questions. So oh, I think I've like, heard about that before. Yeah, when he's done stand-up and stuff, he's talked about the card. But I'm not going to read the whole thing. But it's like, hey, I was, I'm Tom Wilson. I was in Back to the Future. Yes, Michael J. Fox is nice. I'm not in close contact with him. Christopher Lloyd is nice. The director was not Steven Spielberg. It was uh, whatever his face was. Robert Zemeckis, because people always told him, like, what's it like working with Spielberg? And he's like, he's not the director <laughs> of the movie. Uh, uh, he, it's just like all of that. He would just hand that to people. Uh, and so they based it on that. Like, what if God had a business card, which is the funniest thing in the world to me? Yeah, I love that. Just like, hey, you guys are always, always going to ask these questions. Here they are. But But what I was getting at is, like, I think that Matt is angry at this because if David is God... Why wouldn't he talk to Matt? Why wouldn't he approach Matt at some point? Because mm-hmm. Matt is the man of faith, right? He's the man of God on this show. And, you know, right. he has these biases about that and says, like, maybe we're all disciples. And then he's like, well, I guess Lori can't be a disciple. And Michael's like, well, why not? Just because she's a woman and we don't, we, you have like this rigid adherence to the Bible's like word. You know, we could all be disciples here. We could also all just be people on a boat. We don't even have to be. We could just not. None of this could be real. Um, But, like, d- did you feel that same thing? That, like, that was the reason that Matt was mad about all the David stuff? Or was there more to it? Um, I, I think what's really interesting about Matt in this episode is what it's kind of exploring is, like, what if you tested Job again? Yeah. And we've... Like the last two times that we saw Matt go through stories like this, there was always this glimmer of like his mission or his hope uh, and a sense that like, you know, eventually I'm going to reach this point where I'll receive some kind of like reward or uh, vindication for my service to God. And like the last time that we saw him and we learned that Mary's pregnant uh you know that was like an exciting moment for him and i think we were even a little critical of how much that episode kind of glorified matt and and his choices and now we're joining matt after the fact after he's like had those moments and moved through them and like screwed them up because of his obsessiveness with kevin and his idea about the seven year anniversary and stuff. And Mary's left him. He doesn't have uh, her or his son with him anymore. And on some level, he also, his cancer is returning, it seems like, or he's sick in some other way. And uh, it seems like he's being tested again, but I think this time he's sort of, doesn't have hope or or doesn't really understand what the purpose of that is and is having a hard time convincing himself that that he's actually being tested and you know i think what's really interesting is that it, the way that he ends up talking to the god character in this one has the tone of like why like why did you fuck me over i did all the stuff you wanted me to do I passed all the tests and yet here I am again, um, which I thought was 
you know, a really interesting kind of story because like there aren't biblical stories that do that, that say, okay, and now we're going to push this person past their breaking point again um, when, when all hope is lost. Um, That's really well said. I mean, it's, it's, it's like season two pushed Matt to his, like his breaking point, his end and did all of that. And then they said, okay, what happens if you do it again though? Cause does mm-hmm. lightning strike three times? Right. You know, we had all these miracles in season one and then we had Mary come back in season two and things are still bad. So yeah, if I were mad, I too would have my faith in my entire life plan called into question, which makes a lot of sense. Cause like you said, the, all the coughing and the bleeding and stuff and the vomiting is because his cancer is back, which I think the show doesn't do enough of a job like enforcing this, but reinforcing this. But that's like the reason he's spiritual is he mm-hmm. was able to survive cancer and his parents and like continue past his parents dying as a young child. And mm-hmm. so now that's where he got this complex from. So to just bring it back is like it loops all the way back around, just like the season has, just like the show has. And just mm-hmm. like life so often does is it it, it re uh, treads old ground. Yeah. Um, and I, I think what Matt's story kind of gets at in is, you know, his whole character has been about like, I believe that I am being tested. I choose to see everything as a test of my faith, of my character. Yeah. And in this episode, he comes face to face with the question of what if the person or the entity that's testing you is imperfect or has motivations that you can't understand? Uh, Or what if your motivations for trying to pass the tests are imperfect um and what do you do can you be this like this meta conscious about being tested and it still be like a genuine test um it's it gets to this really existential place that i thought was super cool to to Mm -hmm. to unpack and look at because how, how how far do the people in the Bible knew that know that they were being tested? How far did Job know that mm. he was being tested for his whole life uh, before right. he got to meet God later in his life? Right. Um, before the big, well, actually, no. The first thing that happens, the next thing that happens, is that Matt sees David throw somebody off of the boat. Right. And he's like, "Well, that guy definitely can't be God because God wouldn't kill somebody." So none of that makes any sense. And just the the stress of seeing it with your eyes like mm-hmm. this is and 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 how triggering this must be for matt right because uh everything with mary happened and he's like i saw that with my own eyes so now what the hell can i believe mm-hmm. and tries telling these people who are in the midst of like their orgy and nobody wants to listen to him or hear him mm-hmm. and they mentioned earlier like oh that guy in the red hat he's friends with the captain so like they know him and he does stuff like that nobody's mad nobody's going to arrest him the body's not going to be found this is a nothing. This doesn't exist, mm-hmm. basically. Even though it maybe probably did happen, but it doesn't exist for the sake of... Well, I've said this over and over again on the chats overs, but like truth is is communal. Truth is subjective to the, the whims of a community, mm-hmm. uh, which is like really, really, really difficult for Matt to process, uh, right. which makes sense. And he starts like trying to explain this to John Laurie and company, and uh, Laurie and Matt actually call each other good people here, which I really enjoyed. It was nice to... like. Yeah. I hear like somebody say that in this one but matt still has this this complex of like i need to go rescue that guy i'm gonna go throw the life preserver in there 
which doesn't work out. He doesn't find the guy. Uh, and you get this like interesting interaction between him and John where Matt refuses to believe that John believes him. <laughs> he refuses mm-hmm. to believe that John believes him. He's like, mm-hmm. you didn't believe me when Mary happened. Why would you believe me now? And so right. he, this is like the big, like weird moment of the episode is Matt goes into the place with all the like people having their orgy and yells at the woman that he saw earlier. Yeah, by the way, says, I've transferred to the five train at this point. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I'd like to know which train you're on. <laughs> Lots of naked people having naked sex, and uh, as opposed to clothes, I guess you can. Well, anyways, uh, he says all you guys care about is Fraser, which I mm-hmm. and then like I hear the blues are calling, toss salad and scrambled. <laughs> you know, I had to do it for the folks out there. Uh, they're like, oh my god, you said the word, and mm-hmm. let me just do my best to describe this without getting explicit. They sit down, Matt, Dad. They sit Matt down. <laughs> they tie his hands up. They put a funnel near his pangus and a woman proceeds to um, masturbate him with the idea that they're going to like do something with that. We don't get much info because Matt resists and yells at everyone and breaks these restraints. And he's like, you yeah. guys are all sick motherfuckers, which like what I, I don't want to say a hypocritical thing to say, but like kind of right. Cause he also is like, I am weirdly devoted to a specific thing that I have to do weird things to do to accomplish. Uh-huh. And so are they. It's just sensual instead of religious. And it just reminded me of all the ways that like religious folks can be judgmental of those who are engaged in pleasures of the flesh. And it's like, you're mm-hmm. all just like, we're all just doing things. We're all just trying to make meaning of something, man. Uh, yeah. It's, it's definitely this mirror moment for him uh, of just like, clearly all of these people are joined together in this community. They have a set of rituals and like, values i guess or rules of conduct at least um and yeah i i think it can it's difficult for him here to look that in the face and see a society that has like formed itself so like thoroughly around a set of values that feel unfamiliar to him and yeah i think you're right that that as a person of faith probably shakes your foundations of well, if all of these people can end up here, who's to say that I didn't end up in a a place that's also like wrongheaded or off course or mm-hmm. or whatever it is? Like, what does right course look like? Yeah, and I think it like faith is the thing that tells you I'm on the right course, and that's what has been shaken for him. Exactly. Um. A couple other just like quick quick fire things before we get to that final awesome scene with the lion. Uh, Matt seems to like constantly want to have a conversation with only Laurie or only John. Like he just is a very like one on one conversation kind of guy. Yeah, he he. Um, what I think is interesting about how he interacts with the other characters here, he also does it with Michael. Like he he corners Michael and says stuff to him like, "I want to make sure you're with me, no matter what happens." Yeah. He pulls these like manipulative moves throughout the episode to try to get people on his side or turn them against each other. There's that moment in the conversation with all of them where he subtly pushes John to ask about Evie um, and to get Lori to admit that that's who Kevin saw. And then it backfires on Matt when Lori explains herself and John's like, okay, yeah, I understand. Yeah. I love you. 
And Matt's like, ah, damn it. <laughs> All right, I guess I'm going to have to pretend like I'm cool with this and go beat up God myself. Um, but it, it's well, like this is where he says, you know, what happened to your wrath? Because he's right. also saying, like, John, I'm going to go reap this guy. Like, he needs... They're like, okay, let's say you find David. You're not the police. What are you going to do to him? And he's like, well, I'm going to make him uh, dot, 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 say what he did and admit to it. And right. It's like, okay, and then what? He's like, I, I don't... I don't... I mean, that's... He has to do it. It's the only way for this to be clear. And John, why don't you do that? You literally did that as a fire department person... Fire department uh, person mm-hmm. uh, in in Miracle. And he says, what happened to your wrath? And then Laurie says, well, he found peace. And, like, he found me, basically. Uh, which Matt lost. Like, Matt, and we'll talk about this later, but Nora have, like, distanced themselves from each other more and more and more uh, because of, like, their circumstances of their lives. And the truth is they started the series at a very distant point. But now both of them are not finding peace, whereas, like, John and Laurie have, like, connected and found it. Because the truth is, you find peace and you find that sort of sense of of completion from other people. And that's really hard for Matt to process right now. Um, so anyways, Matt goes on his own uh, after all of that and proceeds to assault David with the back of an axe in front of a bunch of onlookers. He wheelchairs him past uh, Frazier. And I wrote to you, I wanted to show this scene to my priest because this is some like <laughs> traditional ass, like <laughs> old Hollywood ass. What if a regular dude talked to God? What if Job got to talk to God? Which happens in the Bible. Yeah. And this is where his faith is put to the test. Next to an actual lion, by the way. I was reading that Christopher Eccleston, like his heart stopped every time he made a loud noise and the lion actually jumped. Oh, They God. actually fucking got a lion. Ugh. Which is <laughs> so scary. cool. It is scary. Um especially because of how good the performances are in this scene. Yeah. And he's basically like, hey, are you, let's just run on the assumption that you're God, right? He's like, yeah, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, Jesus' twin brother. That's why people saw me and thought that he came back to life. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> right. I love that his ex- explanation <laughs> for Jesus' resurrection is the same as, like, the prestige. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. The greatest crime man mankind has ever pulled. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he explains that he is the cause of the departure because, mm-hmm. quote, not quote, he felt like it, but what was it? It was just like to see if I could do it, basically. Because I could, he says. Because I could. Like, yeah. wow. And and you're thinking this whole time, and this is like what I love, love, love about The Leftovers is if this is fake, this is such a funny, weird scene. Like, or not fake, but if this is not true. Mm-hmm then this is such a weird, funny scene. Like these two sad people who just like make up stories to believe in. Mm-hmm. If this is real, it's even more sad that like actually God like doesn't care about you, Matt. And thinks that actually you're pretty selfish for like doing all of this, thinking you're going to get something for it. Cause you were never going to get something for it. There was no reward for you at the end of all of your suffering. Right. And also like this, the other layer of the ambiguity is this could still be true even if he's not God, right? Right, like right. He, Just the guy telling him that, yeah. He could still be saying things that God would say or criticize Matt for. He just happens to be like a surprisingly intuitive guy who's not actually God. And any one of those things could work. And I think that's why Matt rolls with it and talks to him as if he's God, partly because he, Matt needs 
that catharsis, he needs to express this. And like uh, David says to him, uh, he's like, uh, you're going to let me go when you get what I want. Matt says, what is it I want? And David says, my attention, yeah. uh, which is which is what Matt needs right now. He needs God to look at him and explain to him why he has forsaken him, essentially. Yeah. Um, make sense of it. Make it make sense. Yeah. And David gives him an answer. And that, like, affects Matt. And what I found kind of interesting about what comes out of this is Matt comes out of this interaction seemingly having abandoned his commitment to the Kevin stuff. He will see this more in the next episode, but he ends up giving away the book. He doesn't go to find Kevin. He doesn't really seem interested in... Yeah, he doesn't really seem interested in all that. So maybe on some level he believes like, okay, this was God talking to me. I've been chastised. I'm on a wrong path. I'm not going to follow it. Yeah. But he also seems like he, like it. you would imagine it's a pretty clear sign when this guy gets mauled by a lion. <laughs> that he's like being punished by God or something like you could interpret that as Matt as a moment of vindication, but it's unclear like how he feels about that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Does he feel like God chastised him, chastised him and then died? Does he feel like this guy was wrongfully pretending to be God and was punished for it, but still what he was doing was also wrong? I don't know. It's it's an interesting uh, question about like where does Matt end up as a result of this conversation, and and why. And you see in in, in Eccleston's expressions here how much this really shook him. Like to his core, Matt is starting to doubt a lot of things that he held very close to his chest for the longest time, and now he's like, okay, well. If this mission didn't mean anything, then now I'm in Australia. I should probably, yeah, I should probably turn myself into the authorities and like figure it out. And a lot of these episodes, these both of these these episodes are like the the worry and doubt that comes from like last minute uh, confusion and like last minute revelations. When you make a path in your life and you say, "Hey, this is what I'm gonna do. This is where the next couple weeks of my life are gonna go." Like in the beginning of this episode on the plane. When they're like, Matt, what's the plan? We're not going to make it back for the anniversary. Was your plan seriously to get Kevin back to Miracle? And he's like, well, we're on the path. We're just going to keep doing what we're doing and hope it works out. And now he's like, well, that ethos didn't work. This path was wrong. (laughs) I met God and he was a dick to me. (laughs) He was like not kind to me. And he told me that I'm kind of selfish and maybe I am selfish. Uh I resonated with that a lot, not as somebody who's selfish, but as somebody <laughs> who uh, has like committed <laughs> to big life decisions and then been like, you know, what what inspired me to stick to this? Why did I stick to this? Why mm-hmm. did I not waver? Uh, or what? Or moments where I did waver last minute, um, mm-hmm. which is something we'll talk about in the second episode. But like, you know, sometimes life just throws you a curveball and you go, all right, well, that's not my life anymore. And it was really cool in this midnight hour to see Matt kind of have that big shift in a way that doesn't feel like it's even like criticizing religion too much, to be honest. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And also weirdly, it's like fascinating to have this character just from a narrative perspective 
to have this character who's such a major driver of getting everybody in position for the final hour and then in the second to last hour is like yeah it's probably useless I'm good never mind yeah. and everybody else is there like uh okay we're still gonna do it though we're still gonna like go and finish the season and matt's like yeah, yeah sure sounds good I'll, I'll just be over here yeah bleeding in the back of a van <laughs> yeah as he is next episode he he says why david why did you you know hurt me again and it's like because you never you're you weren't doing this for the right reasons and he's like well can you heal me the guys like yeah for sure do you want me to heal you for i got you snaps his finger he was gonna cuts. slap him in the face but yeah he snapped that would have been really funny that would but the way that the music cuts right as he he snaps is great because then you just have matt staring there and the announcement's like we're gonna dock in melbourne shortly and then the guy's like yeah we notified the police are you gonna like be okay with that and he's like yeah i'll do it and just to just to really put the doubt in matt just to really assure mm-hmm. you like this is what does any of this even mean uh, as they're getting off the boat, uh, David lets or not who lets the lion out? Oh, these like these like so, people, like the cultists. Yeah, there's there's like a a splinter cell uh, yeah. within the sex cult who don't believe in the sex cults, and so they release the lion so that the mo- lion will like maul everybody, and the lion just makes a beeline straight to David, straight to David, who runs him. away and like jumps this fence. Yeah. And the lion's like, sweet, I got you. And like we watch no, we don't like see an extreme detail, but yeah, we watch him like maul David to death. And <laughs> Matt's line, maybe the greatest final line of a of a of a leftovers episode. Uh that's the guy I was telling you guys about. Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> which for the double meaning that you picked up on, I loved this. That's the guy who killed the person, but also that's that God fellow I was telling you guys about. <laughs> right. All that time that I was being a priest and telling you about a guy, it was that guy. And he's telling the camera. That's the best thing about that final shot. Is he's mm-hmm. Yes, he's looking at Laurie and John and them, but he's actually looking at us and being like, huh, isn't it funny? Like breaking the fourth wall almost. Like that was it. That was God, yeah. huh? Weird. Anyways, yeah. moving right along. Yeah, it leaves Matt's character on this note of of ambiguity of like, well, what does he believe anymore? What would you believe if you were in his position? Like, is there a, a faith to cling to here? And, you know, he God tells him he's healed. And then later he tells everybody that he's dying. And, um, you know, I don't know. I think it's the thing that's beautiful about this ending is that it feels like a conclusion, but it is inconclusive in productive ways. Like it, exactly. it gives you the space to, to make sense of what happened to Matt in, in this story. Uh, and it kind of creates a new biblical allegory. It has all the stuff, lions and God and weird cave type places and, blood and sex and i mean you know it's all it's all there it's a it's a bible story no kids also yeah exactly no kids definitely no kids in this one i don't think that i don't remember how the story of job actually or the book of job ends but i think it's pretty similar i don't remember if it even involves a lion but like they're doing that they're doing that parallel and i wish sometimes mm-hmm. that the bible ended with a character looking at me on the screen and going huh huh Pretty weird. (laughs) Pretty sneaky, huh? 
Um, yeah, incredible episode, man. Just just what a stunner. <laughs> I say it every time. Uh-huh. Uh, any stray notes you have on this one? Uh, uh, Matt brought a casserole yeah. to his parishioner in Texas. God, the way that he treats this guy who's their pilot sucks. Arturo, yeah. Oh, so bad. So bad. Arturo, I'm sorry, my friend. I'm sorry. Not not a fun. Just the intense manipulation, dickish. the bag full of $20,000, like, yeesh. Yeah, you're going to take us, you know, us. You're going to do it. Come on. Yeah. It's like the full assumption. Lori is the MVP of both of these episodes, I think. Yeah. Watching her say fuck you to Matt is awesome. <laughs> just constantly being like you cannot exclude me i'm going to australia what the hell yeah and also just these little joking lines of when she leaves her conversation with matt and says if you can't find us just look for the orgy the delivery (laughs) on that is very amusing um yeah just uh lots of humor in this episode that's also one of the deepest reflections on like the nature of faith that the show has produced bingus yeah well said uh anything else no that's it all right let's take a deep breath folks that's what we have for now we'll be right back after a brief musical break to discuss certified Welcome back to The Chatsovers. The second episode we watched this week was Season 3, Episode 6 of The Leftovers, entitled Certified. It was written by Damon Lindelof and Patrick Somerville, directed by Carl Franklin. It aired on May 21st, 2017. Alan, what happened in Certified? In this episode, Lori Garvey, a former therapist, must become one again as she heads to Australia to help Nora and Kevin along their paths. Uh, hey guys, we had a fun discussion of the first one, and this one's not going to be a fun discussion, it's going to be a discussion. Uh, I wanted to come out the top and say I appreciated very much that Magellan warned me before watching this episode that it deals very, very heavily with the themes and actions of suicide and suicidal people, suicidal ideation, and acting upon those ideations. So, if that's something that's really triggering for you, uh... Be aware of it. We're going to talk about it. We're not going to go into extreme detail because I know that makes people that's fucking uncomfortable. Uh, just be aware. You don't have to listen to this part of this, the episode. We lo- I loved this episode. It made me ball my fucking eyes out. There's my review of Certified. If you just want to hear that and go from here, I wouldn't judge you in the slightest. Uh, thank you for listening to the chats overs. 
those who choose to stay, uh, we have a wonderful episode of television to discuss. Um, Majan, if you can't already tell, I really liked Certified. I, uh, it, it, it touched me. It touched my soul a bit. What about you? <laughs> Did you like it? It was all right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's, like I said at the top of the episode, both of the episodes we watched this week demonstrate something about the leftovers that really can't be replicated by any other show. It's a Matt, 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 Matt world is an episode that blends uh, bizarre humor with discussions of faith and spirituality um, and blends these kind of disparate elements. It has allegory. It's just like a really cool, unique episode in that way. And certified, I think, is a great example of what The Leftovers is probably best at in the landscape of television, which is The Leftovers has the permission to think about it this way. Like, The Sudden Departure is such a earth-shattering event, right, that you can explore the grief of all the characters in the world and have license in storytelling to like make that grief as explicit and dramatic as you feel appropriate. And in the landscape of television, you know, that's not going to get brushed off or called histrionic or whatever, because it's like, well, these people are living in a world where 2% of the population disappeared out of nowhere. Um, But at the end of the day, the way that that looks for the characters of the leftovers is not like all that different from the way that these sorts of things look for people who live in the normal world. It's just that TV shows don't necessarily broach these topics or feel the license to portray them so nakedly. I think because, um, you know, for whatever reason, maybe it'll come across as exaggerated or inappropriate for the world of the show or whatever. And it's just really fascinating to me that in a way, by being a more like unusual or fantastical world, The Leftovers uh, is able to portray the truths of characters' experiences that are feel much more real uh, and close to home than any other, many other shows that, that I've seen anyway. Um, and so this is a raw episode. It's a truthful one. Um, I think my one reservation about this episode, it deals very heavily with suicide, um, and it kind of like romanticizes suicide in ways that I am curious to unpack a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I, is kind of like a more of a question for me than a critique because I want to explore that. But I think it's a beautiful episode. I think it's a great Lori episode. And I, I really, I really liked it a lot. I, I actually compare it. It's funny because they spent a whole season, you know, in season two with Kevin and the, the cinder block just to come to the conclusion of, Hey, Kevin, maybe you just wanted to die. And maybe you didn't feel like the family unit was coherent and maybe that was the reason you did all of this. And that felt like this season-long mystery that needed to be understood. And we didn't get much of his interiority at the end of it. We got International Assassin. But with Laurie, 
when she realizes that it ha- we understand it over the course of one episode and instead it reinforces and it helps us understand everything that's happened so far with her and also makes like you said the ending of this episode really challenging because instead of the fantastical elements of international assassin we get a much more like realistic moment so to speak that is portrayed in this sort in a very beautiful way and i think it's the responsibility of a showrunner or a director and all of these people to be aware that hey if you're going to show stuff like this you need to be conscious of how you're portraying it uh yeah which is super challenging to think about uh but we're gonna do our best here and of course neither of us are like experts in mental health but i myself have dealt with uh uh, suicidal thoughts and uh, I'll just be out f- up front about this because I feel comfortable talking about it. I already mentioned to Magellan uh, around the time th- that this episode aired I was also in a very low period of my life and I uh, came fairly close uh, and didn't actually end up doing anything physical but came as close as I've ever gotten and I'm doing a lot lot better and so it's in part because of that that I watched this episode and I cried so much because it's not that I saw myself in Lori, but I felt myself wanting to leap through the TV and beg her not to do it. Because mm-hmm. we'll talk about the last scene of this episode, but there is so much life left for her, even through the apocalypse, that I can't like swallow her ju- doing the scuba diving at the end and having that be the end of Lori. I like don't right. want to accept that. So, um, but let's get there. Yeah, um, yeah. Lori at the beginning of the episode is in a flashback with all the way back from season one, episode one, baby Sam's mom, uh, the unnamed mother that we saw in the pilot. <laughs> when she started talking in a way that made it clear who she was, I was like, again, I did not clock this lady. I feel so bad that she's in the show one more time. And I was like, Oh yeah, right. She does an incredible job in this. Scene. She does. Yeah. That I, I'm glad that they took somebody who was like a one, not that she was an extra. She was actually like the star of that first scene, but like yeah. they never had to bring her back, but they brought her back now like three, four times. Right. And they've like filled out her, her interiority really well. And now she's like a whole ass character. It's great. She doesn't have a name yet, <laughs> but I think that partly serves to make you go, okay, she's, she's one of several people who have felt this. She's, she's everyone's grief in a way. Um, And so she's telling Lori that, she doesn't know how to process this and she's going back to the place where Sam disappeared all the time uh, because if if he is going to come back and she says they are going to come back right right Lori right my therapist then I need to be there for my like two month old child because we tried so many things and it's the that story of we, we tried many different ways to have a child none of them worked and we finally had a miracle happen and we had him for a couple months before he disappeared so he has to come back and I have to be there for him. And that's tearing me up inside. And, you know, Matt took a whole episode to break. Lori hit the expedite button and uh, broke in the first scene. Because, as spoiler alert, she has always been conflicted about childhood and finding answers to things and giving people answers as a therapist. Uh, and she says, I don't know what to tell you. The woman is like, you know, this is you versus the guilty remnant right now. Uh, they are right outside and can like let me put on this outfit and then never ask again. You need to give me an answer to tell me not to join them. And she's like, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, and so this is the first time that uh, Lori attempts suicide. She ingests a bunch of pills. 
uh, and then lays down, writes a note, immediately regrets it, uh, and or doesn't regret it, but but ends up not doing it. She she drinks a bunch of ipecac, which, for medical reasons, I have to state that uh, in my research I learned ipecac is not a legitimate or considered medically viable re- way to avoid your body of poison. Uh, it will make you vomit, but it won't necessarily like get things out of your intestinal system. Just letting people know that uh, for, you know, safety reasons. And there's just like incredible music through all of this. And like you said, there is an element of like beauty that makes all of these scenes really tough. Uh, that makes this and the scuba scene really tough. It's like, wow, this is so beautifully rendered and it sucks. And it's sad because she's in this like terrible place, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Um. And we learned that that's the reason that she joined the Guilty Remnant, or that was basically the origin story, because mm-hmm. the Guilty Remnant doesn't ask you for answers. They don't say, what does this all mean? You don't have to keep answering them. You can just do what they say, wear the white, smoke the cigarettes. It's a slower suicide, and mm-hmm. uh, and just live out your days like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know... We learn a little bit more from Lori when she's talking with Nora and Matt in the van later about how she and John would never do or they tried to do their their like little grift thing uh, with people who had departed. And whenever they would claim to be able to speak with someone who had departed, uh, people would get really angry. Uh, And she explains it's because, you know, when somebody dies, it's over. You want closure but with people who departed you don't want closure because you want to hold on to this belief that like they're coming back or uh, or something and in a way it's interesting to hear that and to see her in this moment of joining the guilty remnant where it feels like the whole thing of the guilty remnant is that we just refuse closure of any kind right like we're just Mm -hmm. going to hold this wound open forever um and that's like the thing that laurie is drawn to because like she says to her client i don't know what you should do because i don't know what i should do so i'm just gonna like sit in that not knowing and turn that not knowing into a kind of knowing. Um, right. I know that I don't know. Yeah. And it, it it was really interesting to see that happen. I kind of was surprised that that was the sequence of, of events that she like volunteered herself uh, to join. Cause I thought for sure, you know, maybe like Patty convinced her or, or something yeah. like that, just given their existing relationship. And maybe there's some of that that happened off screen and you know while she was still seeing patty before patty joins up with them i don't know but for that uh kind of pivot moment to be entirely driven by by laurie i think was was really interesting to witness and helps us to understand you know her arc in this episode because even though in this episode it starts with laurie attempting suicide and ostensibly it ends with her attempting suicide maybe or not it's left open-ended her reasons for doing so feel much different from Mm -hmm. beginning uh of the episode to the end um and and that's sort of like the arc that that we follow throughout right how does your life take you on this whole journey across the literal planet 
and you still feel the same hurt, the same loss that you felt eight, seven years ago. Um, I, I was like also thrown, speaking of like the timeline of things, the fact that the departure had happened. So what Lori did is the departure happened and her family started to drift even further apart. And then she lost her child and she continued being a therapist. So like, mm-hmm. yeah, when Sam's mother is talking to her about this, it is intimately familiar with Lori, this feeling of what do I do? How do I process this? I thought there was life inside of me and it's not there anymore. I can't reconcile that. Mm-hmm. Uh, over and over again, this is what the show has been about since season one, episode one, is that the departure takes away your ability to grieve. And just having them like underline it really firmly in this episode like did a lot for me, I think. Um, and so from here, the episode kind of splits and is portraying two parts of the timeline back and forth with Lori as the sort of focal point of both of them. Um, we have the initial time that uh, Nora and company get off of the boat. And uh, we Mm -hmm. also have the quote-unquote present time, which is literally a day before uh, the Uh seventh anniversary, and we're dealing with Kevin Sr. and Jr. there. Yeah. And the the timeline is a little confusing. I kept checking. (laughs) Did I skip 15 minutes? Am I on the right episode right now? Um, Because they sort of, they do this deft kind of... uh, non-linear storytelling that at times it felt like why are you doing it this way but ultimately it's so that we can reach a climax for nora and matt's story around the same time that we reach a climax for laurie's story and laurie can be in both places at once Mm. um so it ends up working narratively but it's confusing at first um it is should i should i just clear up for folks this this like chronological yeah, sequence like, what happens in the past and what happens in the present sure yeah it. so we we like skip over some stuff uh that we don't see off screen so when last we left our various you know nobody's a hero here when last we left our people our human beings kevin had left with his dad there somewhere nora is in the hotel alone and matt Lori, john and michael are here in Melbourne looking for Kevin. So off screen, what ends up happening is our four folks from Miracle go to the hotel. They find Nora there. And their working assumption is Kevin has left the country or has gone to the airport to try to leave. Michael and John go to the airport to look for him. Meanwhile, Lori and Matt hang around with Nora. Nora is on a mission to find uh the what are the doctor's names again dr eden and dr becker dr eden and dr becker she's on a mission to find them to find the machine to essentially send herself through it whatever that means and matt and laurie are going to help her out and so that's kind of like the past story Uh, meanwhile john and michael go to the airport kevin's not there but john calls kevin and kevin says hey i'm hanging out with my dad uh, in the Australian countryside, come find us. They go do that. Mm. They don't tell Lori that that's what's happening. John keeps it from her because he knows that she doesn't really believe in the mission that they're on. But Michael secretly calls Lori to try to get her there, um, which is an interesting dynamic and calls into question, you know, how much does Michael believe all of this stuff? What 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 is he 
hoping uh, is going to take place here. And so Laurie eventually leaves Matt and Nora to go join the rest of the characters. Um, and the second half of the story starts with her finding them uh, in the what is the present or the, the furthest forward part of the timeline. In Grace's home. Yeah. Uh, with photos of her children and all of that. Yeah. So let's talk about the past stuff first. Even though, like let's I said, the episode jumps back and forth. I think what structurally the jumping back and forth does, though, is it, again, ties us back to Lori all the time and mm-hmm. uh, kind of like answers its own cyclical mysteries in a way. Like one scene will then answer something that happened in the present, which will then answer something that happened in the past. And these are all, this is worth noting, these are all cut with like either match cuts or dialogue like, cuts. Yeah, thematic dialogue overlay stuff yeah uh i think in the in this scene in the past there was someone was saying oh you're so like oh Todd john is like oh you're so close and then we cut back to the past and someone goes oh you're getting too close uh which is well this is when nora is like it's only literal when it's not ridiculous when regarding like matt not believing in oh the, you're right yeah that scene was yeah. in this episode that's my yeah friend. no it's all good um it was in these these pair of episodes so they like yeah the map the the pairing and the cutting there is like really brilliant but but for the sake of our discussion let's let's go in chronological order. So yeah. Lori is like installing these cameras to see Doctors Eden and Becker. It seems like they are, I, my prediction was right that they may be in some sort of like romantic relationship because they're like very mm-hmm. touchy feely here. Um, yeah. I'm just gonna head canon it at this point. I don't or, or I guess I'm gonna canonize it because they're living together. Uh, <laughs> she gets bit by a dog. And Matt's just kind of hanging out there, too. Again, Matt's bias is showing. He's like, they can't be physicists. And what he says is, like, they're not wearing lab coats. But also, like, they are, like, they're women, you know? Like, there's just this Mm. element of, like, that doesn't look like what a physicist looks like to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they're just kind of, like, waiting it out. And you get some incredible dialogue between uh, Nora and Lori, especially here. Um, the other connecting thing is that uh, Lori in the present day has uh, a black eye on her right eye uh, or, you know, a black bruise on her right eye because her and Nora got in a fight uh, after having a really sad discussion. This must be a really hard series of scenes for, for Carrie Coon to play because it's like, hey, yeah. you just lost this guy that you that kept you grounded and you're probably going you're going to do something really severe very soon. Yeah. What do you have left to talk about? And all she has left to talk about these days is like, what's an elegant way to kill yourself? Right. If I was going to do it, I would go scuba diving because there are a lot of different ways that it can go wrong if you're by yourself and people won't think that anything bad happened and you can go quietly and quickly. So, mm-hmm. and you get to be in the ocean, which a lot of people like. There's a sort of like cleansing to that. She's discussing how it's quote elegant and, uh, then she kind of pivots the topic to ask Lori if she can do a reading, just like her and John used to do. She says, I mm-hmm. want to talk to my kids, which is when, yeah, we learned that Lori can't do that because people need, don't want close. They don't actually want that closure. And mm-hmm. when people try to provide it, uh, they get really mad. And so she can't do it. Death is yeah. easy. People just want finality and end in their grief, which yeah. is a line that carries a lot more weight when you think about what Lori's going to go on to do in this episode. When And Nora, actually. And Nora. Well, and I think for me, a a sort of interesting question here is Nora says something along the lines of like, well, I want fucking closure. That's what I want. And 
you know, it makes me wonder, like, is this what what does closure mean? Is what Nora it seems like Nora knows that she's on a suicide mission mm-hmm. because Lori calls the box this an elegant way to kill yourself. Mm-hmm. Um and Nora's considering this closure. It seems like the emotion that she feels when she says goodbye to Lori is a sense of closure. But like is that is that what closure is? I, I don't know. And I, I'm not asking that to say that I know an, an answer to that necessarily. Um, but it, it to me, it's just a, a really interesting thing of like, you know, what what is it that Nora is looking for at this point? It seems like she's looking for an end to her grief or an end to this uncertainty of where did they go? Are they coming back? And she's only really finding that in this opportunity to just go in this box and like let fate decide yeah. what happens next. I, uh, I really struggle to talk about the motivations here because that's where it gets like really sensitive. Sure. For me. And if you want to like shift the way the conversations framed, please. Certainly. Um, yeah. it's just like, yeah, like I said, like for me, this is like, we're tapping into the stuff. Um, I think what gets me the most about Nora here. This is, I guess, after she punches or she elbows Lori in the face just to get there. Uh, she borrows Lori's lighter to light a cigarette. Uh, I have to say, Carrie Coon does look amazing with a cigarette dangling out of her mouth. Just like, <laughs> God damn it. I hate it. She does hmm. say like, they're like, you know, it's bad for you. She's like, yeah, that's because it's, it's sexy. A slow suicide is sexy. Mm-hmm. Um, she says, please give it back. You know, Lori's like, this is the lighter that I got for my daughter that I like dropped in the sewer in season one and then picked it up. And then Nora claps back. Oh, like I did with Lily. Which just the quiet, the quiet in that van right there is the best quiet in this whole episode, I think. Uh, and yeah, she they they hit each other. They that's where the the black guy comes from. And I think that Nora, uh, what the saddest line she says here is, "I just want to I want to be with my fucking family." When they ask her about like why do you want to do the whole box thing, you know why Magellan? Besides the fact that we know what we know what that box probably is going to do to her. Because Matt is in the shot. Right. Like, the thing that people don't get is that it's right in front of you. The thing you needed was right in front of you when you have thoughts like this. Right. Uh, And that's fucking hard to understand. So that was the moment that I was like, oh, shit. We're going to do this, aren't we? Because, like, they never talk enough about, like, Matt and Nora being siblings. Like, they are brother. They are family to each other. Right. And both of them, as we've seen the last episodes, need each other more than ever. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Well, and and I think it what's really beautiful is that we get there by the end of the episode. Right. Yeah. Like this shot raises that of I want to be with my family. And then at the end of the episode and then Nora, you know, makes some crack about Kevin is with his dad and she says, oh, good. We should all be with family. Yeah. You know, on this day. And then in that last moment when Lori's leaving them, Matt says, well, you know, we should be with family. And there's this what like incredible performance moment from Carrie Coon when the baseball she's story? well that, but just this little moment where Matt says like, Oh, I should stay. And Nora's like, okay. And like starts yeah. crying. And it's just like, Oh my this, God. Yes. Such a sweet little moment of, 
love and, and reconciliation between the two of them. Actually, I think I'm going to stay here for a while. People should be with their families, right? Okay. Which, yeah. yeah, is an incredible thing. And I think also for me is a kind of, I think we'll talk about it a lot when we get to Lori's final moment and the, the phone call. Um, but it is a, it does raise, you know, questions of like, I don't know. I think that's part of the romanticizing of things that I am struggling with a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I need to see what yeah. happens to Nora in the box. Yes, um, we need to see what happens next to know. Yeah, which is great. That's good TV right there. Yeah. Um, they get to the overlook the the uh the truck or whatever the van that the doctors are coming out of. It says like it's a it's like a a shell company or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nora tells the story. This is actually this is where I started fucking bawling my eyes out. She tells the baseball story, which, long story short, uh, after the death of their parents, Nora and Matt went to a ba- they were taken to a baseball game by members of their church because uh, they their family the church wanted them to feel better, and so they were like, oh, we'll take kids to a baseball game. And uh, there was this beach ball, and people were throwing around the audience, and then Matt hit it really really hard because he was having a great time guy near the bottom of the uh, of the field took the ball and popped it and she can't understand why somebody would want to do that why mm. would you want to end the thing that's like making people feel this community and happiness and right. Lori very bluntly is like if they if that ball ended up on the if that kept going you would have ended up on the field and then we would have had fucking chaos which right. is also why Lori's doing everything she does in this episode in the present. You know, I'm talking about like mm-hmm. the past and the present inform each other here. He's like, yeah. if I let all of you guys do this stuff with Kevin, then we're going to have a bad situation afterwards. We're going to like lose my husband, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Uh, and she says, uh, she tells uh, or Nora, Nora before she leaves for the last time uh, is like, you know, Lori, you can leave. You can take the van. Matt's going to stay for a bit. Uh, and can I like, Prom- promise you won't tell anyone about this uh and then she's like do you have anything do you have a dollar and Nora's <laughs> like i only have hundreds and then she's like, can i have <laughs> it's so funny like of course you would only carry hundreds here uh what does she give her she gives her the light the match box of book. cigarettes box of cigarettes box of cigarettes and she says congratulations Nora durst you are now officially my patient oh man oh my god crying this, magellan this cry i couldn't stop I don't yeah. know what it is. That scene, I was like, "Oh my god, Amy Brenneman, Carrie Coon." I I like have, seriously, guys, have not stopped. Cry, haven't cried that hard at a TV show in a very long time. Mm-hmm. You are now my patient. You are. I'm sworn to secrecy. And then I stopped thinking about the Nora machine stuff because we don't get more of it. And if I think too much about why Nora is going in there, I start to have a meltdown. So yeah, that well, basically and also my my favorite little bit at the end is Nora saying same time next week you have to tell them I did this give me a dollar I only have hundreds give me um, give me your cigarettes congratulations Nora Durst we're now officially my patient. 
same time next week. You're on. Yes. <laughs> oh, fuck you, the left. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah. My I, heart? I just, what a moment, like, Lori, you know, giving to Nora the thing that nobody is going to be able to give to yeah. her, right? Like, this moment of understanding and intimacy that only Lori can give Nora right now. And then there's nobody who's really going to be able to show that to Lori, except Kevin to an extent, like, you know, in his way. Um, yeah. Which we'll, we'll talk about. I so desperately want to see what happens with, with Nora. Yeah. I have my theories. I know certain things, but I need that closure. That's my closure is I don't even need to see like her live or die. I just want to like, see, I don't know. I want to see what the machine looks like. I don't know what I want. I don't know what I want, <laughs> but intense. So, um, meanwhile, we could, we let's, let's pivot back to the present plot line, mm-hmm. which is not as complicated uh, like narratively uh it's a lot of i loved Lori and uh kevin senior talking to each other as like uh her father-in-law in a way uh not anymore but former father right but they still that's the relationship that they have right that yes they form, she calls so. him like pops i think yeah and he calls her lorelei and i'm like oh there's a sweetness here there's a humanity here yeah and an affection that you can't ignore despite like the years of distance that have gone between them yeah i think he's burying christopher sunday here because like Lori like holds her nose it's like something smells really bad and there's somebody like under the floorboards i think he's like he found christopher's body uh, i think it's the Ca- australian kevin oh Be- you're absolutely right because no, absolutely later right. that other guy shows up and he's yes. like ah he was gonna find the body so i had to clonk him yeah <laughs> you're absolutely right thank you I was like, I don't remember him finding it. Okay, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, then there's lots of back and forth in time. People are asking her about the black guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, John, his motivation for having Kevin go through is to speak to Evie, not to ask her what happened, not to ask her to come back, but to tell her that she was loved. It's mm. all he ever wanted was no. that's his closure. Is if I could have just said it then I'll be happy, which is really beautiful. And this is part of a conversation he has with Lori where you kind of get like a feel for their relationship. Like uh, we're both pushing each other in different directions. And at the end of the day, are, am I crazy? He says to her, tell me I'm crazy. Tell me we've gone too far and we'll go back. Yeah. Uh, And this is where she says to him, you're so close. Like basically you're so close to just getting your closure why not just finish this even though it seems weird and you think you're not well just do it right because otherwise you're just gonna like always think about having not seen it through right Right. yeah can you put yourself in these guys' shoes for a sec especially john who like has gotten some really crucial lines but not a ton ton of screen time uh and just like you know, is my daughter alive or dead? My faith has been challenged and unchallenged over and over again. Kind of similar to Matt, but he mm-hmm. hasn't had his like uncoming to God moment. He just all he yeah. wants is to tell his daughter he loved, that she she was loved. That's it. Yeah, I I think what's really fascinating about the different camps of characters in this episode and how they interact is that it kind of neatly 
divides along the lines that Lori lays out when she's talking to Nora and Matt about why they didn't do readings for people uh, for departures. Um, mm-hmm. Because the way that Nora and Lori move through this episode is much different from John, Michael, Grace, because Lori and Nora are dealing with the aftermath of losing people to the sudden departure and feeling a particular kind of grief that is like ambiguous, unknowable, confusing, overwhelming, like it's this sort of shapeless thing where they're isn't a clear way to resolve it Mm -hmm. whereas john michael grace they're all experiencing a kind of grief that is like in a way defined by very clear parameters there's like a piece of information that they want to say and then they'll feel at peace Mm -hmm. yeah exactly there's a thing they want to know grace wants to know where her kids put their shoes right Mm -hmm. and i i think that's like a really, really thematically fascinating place for this show to go because, you know, we started the show talking about with the pilot, the ways that this is a show about grief, the ways that this is a, in some ways a COVID show that's kind of about like the aftermath of just unexpected, confusing, horrific mass events and like, mm-hmm. what do we do? And the societal like, rage that builds up as a result of that and so you know and there are ways that i can kind of sit on both sides of this divide a little bit as someone who you know in the laurie and nora stuff i can sort of understand like living in a unknowable world and the kind of like feelings of alienation or disassociation that they're probably Mm -hmm. experiencing Mm -hmm. And also having experienced like personal familial loss, Mm -hmm. identifying with John's desire, like if I could have just said like this one more thing, there's like this, this one piece of unresolved business with XYZ person. I know exactly what it is. And if I could just say it or just hear this, then I would, then I would be at peace. Um, and I think it, it it's just incredible. Like I've never watched a show that has helped me to understand those two sides of that coin or however yeah. you want to ex- express it. Um, and to see characters kind of meet, but also miss each other here because of those different experiences. It's really fascinating to watch and, and powerful too. And I don't want to get like too psychologically here because we're also a tv podcast and that's not necessarily we don't just talk about our feelings here and stuff we kind of blend it but Mm. one last thing about this is uh in life we kind of always have if then statements like this you Mm -hmm. know as soon as i make this much then i'll be happy as soon as i find this person then i will be able to do xyz as soon as i look like this night as soon as X, Y, and Z. And you go and you keep making these conditional statements until you die, you know? And then it's like, well, mm-hmm. okay, none mm-hmm. of them are going to be resolved. And, and at the end of the day, you see other people die and you say, well, if I, if I could have just said this, then it would have been okay that they died. And the truth is, 
that there was never going to be enough. You were never going to have enough time to say everything you wanted. And mm-hmm. that's just something that's like a really tough thing about grief that we come to understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something I just like really loved about all these exchanges. Yeah. Well, and I think there's something about like, you know, Lori and Nora and, and I think are in a position of having an awareness of that, of like, there just aren't any if then statements anymore. And uh, I wonder if, you know, there's somewhere in the middle of those two things, right? Mm-hmm. Where like, we can't completely um, let go of the fact that like, there are things that make us feel better or more connected. There are the things that we need right here, like you said. And also, there are like, unknowables to life and things that are not going to be resolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just this sort of like, space in the middle of of these two experiences that is what life is and being able to make peace both with like the things that we can't know or control and also appreciate the things that that we have and we can control and we can cherish while we have them um those are both of those things are like incredibly difficult things to do yes um and you know i think we're seeing characters wrestle with that over the course of of this episode yeah and this dinner scene coming up is where i felt like you know oh man this is what the leftovers needs to end on is a sort of last supper where you know not literally where somebody dies because that's what literally not dies but where people get hurt because that's what literally happens but just i wanted everybody to like sit and have a meal together if the leftovers could have ended on a happy meal, uh, on a happy like conversation over food or something, yeah. I would have been like, "This is a beautiful ending. Family and 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 community persist despite tragedy." Right. And we're not there yet, and you know it's not the end of the show yet. And so, Lori takes this moment to make a choice, and uh, you know, Michael is asking like, "Okay, if we're all supposed to be on a Last Supper metaphor per Kevin Senior, then." Who's who? Can Lori be here? Because she's a girl. I guess she's probably Thomas. And John is obviously John. Michael, who do you want to be? Michael's confused and doesn't know what makes sense. Uh, yeah, Michael says pass. Pass, exactly. Yeah. Um, and then Lori says, I'm not Thomas, I'm Judas. Uh, and they start to question Judas's motives and how afterwards in the Bible he, with his like 40 coins, 40 silver coins he got for killing uh, Jesus, like uh, died, you know, I believe he killed himself. Killed himself. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing you start to realize that's really sad is Lori's been telling people every single scene she's in that that's what she's thinking about. Yes. But she just isn't saying it explicitly. Yes. And you're focusing on everything else, but she's really saying it. And so Lori's Judas here. She poisoned everybody with the dog's pills uh, and everybody's knocked out. So that when Kevin comes home, cowboy Kevin himself, <laughs> I was, I've never been so happy to see Justin throw. You're mm-hmm. like, fuck, this isn't the dinner reunion that I wanted. Right. Right. This is so sad. This is like a, I've arrived at five pigeon run road and what do we have left? Let's just kind of like, let's just trauma dump for a minute. They t- Yeah. <laughs> they- it's just a quick thing on the dinner scene before we get to this uh, conversation. Um, it's more of what we talked about in that first episode of characters making meaning of their own stories. And yeah. also, in a way, the meaning making then 
making the story happen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because Lori like takes in what what Michael says and realizes like oh yeah I'm even more aligned with Judas's story than I thought Oops. um yeah just all of that was like really really something else uh and then yeah we're in this conversation with Kevin which starts with him looking in <laughs> to the window and she's like yeah i drugged everybody and he turns around and goes jesus laurie <laughs> such a kevin moment so funny um and then yeah like you're saying we we just let it all let it all out we uh we share all of our big big uh things we've been holding on to mistakes that we've made it's it's a really beautiful scene long time coming also yeah, the truth is, as we talked about this last week, but Kevin, the woman in his, the person in his life that he's most attached to, is not his father, it's not his current partner, now ex, it's his ex-wife. Like, mm-hmm. it's always been Lori. And this is the most we honest we've ever seen Kevin uh, mm-hmm. to another person. This feels so much better than him being like, hey, Nora, I tried to kill myself in, in Jarden. It's like, no, actually, yeah. uh, I flushed <laughs> Jill's, like, hamster or whatever rest in peace mr mr farty or whatever she's like it's mr funny (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh she also reveals to him on her side that she was pregnant which i don't even know how you handle that reveal when you're kevin you're like oh wow (laughs) that's Uh intense yeah but they just keep escalating and then he's like you know when i was dead uh it wasn't that bad you know, maybe I was dead, but I had never felt so alive. Hmm. Uh, and then the throw, the line that almost feels throwaway is he's like, is Nora gone? And then just Lori very quickly goes, oh, we're all gone. Like gone doesn't mean anything like dead doesn't mean anything anymore. Uh, hmm. Not physically here barely means anything. We're all going to disappear in a day anyway. So what's left? Right. And either of you are like, cool, that scene is done. There is no more suffering for us to deal with. Lori is going to go to yeah. bed with Kevin, and it's going to be fine. It is not. Uh, Lori. Well, crucially, in this scene, Lori gives Kevin the lighter that yep. that Jill gave her. Again, which, she's telling people. Right. Because that's, you know, when people give away prized possessions like that, that's a sign. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um especially since we saw her fight for it so hard and cling to it earlier, which makes you wonder, like, when did Lori make this decision for herself? And, you know, we don't have to necessarily pinpoint a moment, but it's certainly bringing that question to mind here. It seems like Lori is pretty certain uh, that she's not, she tells Kevin, you know, I'm not going to be there when you, when they drown you yeah uh i can't be there here keep this and uh yeah then we go off with Lori to go scuba diving Mm -hmm. and it feels clear to us what that means everything that Lori has said and done up to this point uh and you know nora's conversation with her about scuba diving indicates to us what's going to happen here and then the phone rings fuck it dude <laughs> but can you can you talk about this part i need to i need to like choke my tears back for a minute <laughs> sure 
So the phone rings and uh, it's Jill. Who hey, Jill. We didn't expect to hear from. And it's not only Jill, it's Tom there too. Fuck. And the two of them are having an argument about whether or not Jill is like imagining this random movie from when they were kids. And they called mom because, you know, mom is the person who's going to know if the movie existed and what it was called and, and all that stuff. And there's just so much joy between the two of them. Lori's so happy to hear from them. And this is the first time we've really seen Lori like interacting positively with either of them mm-hmm. in a while, I think, because the last time we saw Lori and Jill interact, Jill was like, what the fuck are you doing here? Um, as far as I remember. And last time we saw Lori and Tom interact, Tom was like, fuck you, mom. <laughs> like, you're using me. Um, and then three years went by that we didn't see. But we have this moment that very clearly shows, like, we are loving each other. We're happy. Jill says, I love you at the end of the call. And there's this, like, ambiguous thing that happens here where Lori feel Lori like to us seems to be at peace it seems like that does something for her um that makes her feel good and so then the guy the scuba guy says okay if we're gonna do this it's now or never little does he know <laughs> what he's saying there right and then Lori puts on her gear and goes under the water. And um, Episode, the, the camera we'll hangs. <laughs> the camera yeah. hangs on the side of the boat for like a good 10, 15 seconds before cutting to credits. Yeah. Maybe we won't find out. Maybe. Yeah. And that's, you know, just like, I mean, it's a Matt, 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 Matt world had this incredibly potent inconclusive conclusion for matt yeah and here's the same thing for Lori. this incredibly potent inconclusive conclusion that i think tosses the question back to the viewer of like you know this story ultimately isn't about like what did Lori do this story is about like what would you do or how do you feel about this mm-hmm. and you know I think you could make the case that like Lori's absence from that final shot where she's fallen into the water is now putting us in the position where we are the ones sitting on the boat looking at the water, right? Yep, yep, yep. And uh, now, yeah, now I'm having a hard time talking and that's fucking me up a little bit. <laughs> I can uh, take it. I can take so, it. So, Yeah. It's a very tough moment to be there and to watch somebody do this because I yeah. started crying at this part and I thought to myself, Lori needs to survive. Lori needs to live through right. this because there is like, yes, it's a little bit hokey that her daughter calls at just the right time. But that's how life works sometimes, guys. Is you mm-hmm. you don't plan for things and they just happen. That's how the sudden departure happened too. Uh so I, I'm okay with that. But the sad thing is that doesn't happen for most people is you don't get the like nice call where your daughter says she loves you 
And in a lot of stories you do and then you go, oh, I have so much to live for. Like, it, uh, it's a wonderful life. Like, okay, I'm going to, I choose life. Lori might still not have chosen it. Maybe this was the closure right. she needed to know that it's okay to do it. It's okay to go. Right, that her kids are okay. Yeah. They don't need me anymore. Because that's like the, the thing about motherhood is part of like, quote unquote, succeeding in motherhood is realizing that they don't need you anymore. Yeah. Which is the hardest, one of the hardest things about being a mom, I, I, to my understanding. So I think it's left perfectly ambiguous here because she could be going there and once again, like the Ipecac scene, just go, oh, wait, no, never mind. And come right, right out. Right. But as of the end of this episode, we just don't know. And I'm left heartbroken and desperately hoping that she persists, even mm-hmm. though mm-hmm. thousands, millions like her through the pandemic, through years, through the various difficult times of history. Uh, haven't continued yeah. past this point, right? So I feel I feel the weight of that in this ending. Uh, you think about how like this episode came out in 2017. America's a year into the Trump administration, less than a year. We're in the middle of the first year of the Trump administration, mm-hmm. and you see a jump in in suicide numbers, and then you see in 2020 and 2021 another jump. And what happens is sometimes when something is global, like the departure, like uh, the like a big election, like COVID, you mm-hmm. can't reconcile an ending. You know, you cannot feel like, OK, I get it now and I'm done worrying about it. It feels permanent. Right. right. And so for Tom and Jill to call right there, it's like, oh, shit, this world, this plane of existence has a family that I raised and right. that love me. That that's why I like. If she does it, my heart is fucking forever broken. Because yeah. they was right there. She saw it. She felt it. And then still chose to do this. And I that's what what gets me the most. But Yeah. And also, when you do something like this, you come out of it, you get to you kind of get a new lease on life. You know, all mm-hmm. these other people are gonna survive this apocalypse probably. And they're all gonna have a new lease on life and under and like come at it. All they need to do now, all the characters left alive on the leftovers need to do is survive this apocalypse. And they will come out of it happier, I hope, and be able to heal. But they're in a very tough time right now, and I understand where Lori's coming from, for better and for worse. Fuck. <laughs> I'm glad we're allowed to cuss on the show. If we weren't, I would not be having <laughs> So I Agreed. guess we don't know the fate of Lori Garvey right now. Yep. Um, you still don't know anything about the next two episodes? Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. I scrubbed and looked at random moments from both episodes. You're insane! (laughs) I don't know anything, but I have seen images flash before my eyes (laughs) from both. I mean, come on. How can you end these two episodes and not be like, give me a little, just a little taste I gotta. That's why they have a preview of the next episode. You just watch the preview. You're right. I made my own preview, and I, that was hubristic of me. I'm sorry. It's okay. No, it's fine. It's fine. I just, I don't know much left. There's not much left that I know, and I'm excited. I, depending on when we get off this call, I might watch at least one of them tonight. Yeah, I'm feeling that that same urge. 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 Any straight notes? 
I really liked that Kevin Sr. said discombobulated. Uh, the, the subtitles had trouble with that on my end. <laughs> Dis, that hyphen com, comma, uh, hyphen fucking, yeah. Yeah, one of my favorite little language things is, you know, where we put the fucking word. when we, yeah, discombobulated. Because you can't say dis fucking combobulated. Well, <laughs> it, it, I guess you yeah. could. Discombobulated, fucking lated. Like it's it's all eh, yeah. it's all a little janky. Yeah. Um. So that was that was fun. I like that. Um. There's this little moment where Laurie is recapping to Kevin Senior what's going on, and it sounds pretty silly. And then she looks around and she's like, "Well, so everybody wants something." Which is just like how stories work. Um, just, Isn't this also the scene where Kevin Senior is like, "What? We're all playing characters," and it's like, "Yes, <laughs> stop doing that." Yeah, she does this like Wizard of Oz thing, and then he calls her Dorothy, which I think is funny, and also is the role that she's playing here. Yeah. Um, let's see. That's. That's pretty much all I had. Um, yeah, that's all I had from this one. I have two quickies. Okay. Uh, in that first scene where Kevin Sr. is burying the cop and Lori's like, huh, you guys all think that this guy, my my ex-husband dying is going to like stop a flood? Fucking why not? Mm-hmm. And when a mailman or whatever knocks on the door, they obscure his face for a second. And the way the writing and the pacing is like, you think it's Kevin. Like, right. You're like, right. is it? Am I about to like watch? Because they're keep talking about like, when's Kevin coming back? Are we all gonna wait for Kevin? And mm-hmm. they obscure the mailman's face, and then it's like, hello, and you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> What's up, bud? Hey, bud. My other note was uh, the show that um, Jill is asking her mom about at the end is called Today's Special, uh, which is a real Canadian children's television program uh, that mm-hmm. aired on Nickelodeon in Canada and the U.S. Uh, and it's exactly as she described. It's very weird. It's about it, in the children's department of a major department store. Each night when Jody arrives for work, she carries a mannequin upstairs named Jeff. Muffy says the magic words "Hocus Pocus Alamogocus" and brings him to life. Hmm. And they like hang out, and it, sometimes it gets kind of dark. Sometimes it's like just little short films. It seemed like a weird thing. Um. So yeah, today's special. I figure these are already like the biggest TV nerds writing TV shows. Of course, they're going to make a real uh-huh. reference. <clears throat> right. But that brings us to the end of our discussion uh, for this week. Let's talk about what we're watching next week, folks. Yeah. Next week on the chats over is we are finishing The Leftovers with its final two episodes. Uh, they are season three, episode seven, which is the full title is the most powerful man in the world, parentheses, and his identical twin brother. On a mission of mercy, Kevin assumes an alternate identity. We're also watching the series finale, which is season three, episode eight, The Book of Nora. Nora wishes to make a major decision, but what are the consequences? Hmm. She's going to get in the machine. I I can only imagine that the machine looks like the machine from Babylon 5, the great machine. Like, it's a big mm. wheel that she's... Tra- that's, how it, that's how it looks in my head. But mm. they said it was, like, an isolated box. It's probably, like, an MRI machine, actually. Oh. That's probably what it looks like. MRI machine. Isn't... What is it? No. Yeah, MRI I don't, okay. I don't think the M is machine. Okay. I was like, am I doing an ATM machine right now? I think it's magnetic. 
Yes, that makes sense. The Book of Nora and the most powerful man in the world and his identical twin brother. We're going to get a weird Kevin episode and then we're going to get the saddest shit in the world. Great. Great. Uh, Magellan, Can't before wait. we go home, mm-hmm. can you uh, give me our, uh, our plug zone, please? I surely can give you the plug zone. So if you want to get in touch with the show, you can do so in a few different ways. You can email us at chatspot at gmail.com where you can send your questions, your comments, your concerns. Uh, And that's also a place where you can say, hey, I want to be on an episode. It's a little late to be on The Leftovers, but uh, next week we will be announcing our season, oh gosh, 15? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Next week, we'll be announcing season 15, and so you can get in on the ground floor by emailing us and letting us know if there are episodes of that show to be named later that you would like to join us for. You can also follow us on Twitter at ChatsPod on Twitter to uh, DM us or like things or retweet or, you know, at at us, whatever uh, the Twitter stuff is. You can join fellow listeners on reddit.com slash r slash chatspod to discuss current and old episodes of our show. You can also join us over on our Discord, which is a benefit for a dollar and up patrons. At $3, you get access to twice monthly bonus content, which could be us talking about random stuff, or it could be us piloting shows or doing movie commentaries. And then at $5 and up, you get thanked at the end of every main feed episode. We have thanks here in our hearts for Stefan, Six, Pat, and Nick of the Brothers in Infinite War, Michael, Marcus, my mom, Lee, Kat, Jen, and Arthur. Thank you, folks, for supporting the show. You can also support the show by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and by checking out our website, chatspot.com, and supporting our good friend Camilla at Camillustrator, who created our podcast, Art. Thank you for all of that. Uh, you can also find us on other podcasts if you want to. Alan, do you want to tell the folks where they can hear you on uh, on a different show? I do. You can hear me on The Hunter's Quorum, which is a podcast where we talk about the monsters from the Monster Hunter games. We previously talked about Pokemon on that podcast. And uh, we just released an episode uh, as part of a new sub-sub-sub-series. Um, I forget the name of it, but it's basically the Quorum, but for the game Temtem which is an indie game that's very similar to Pokemon that recently hit 1.0 and uh, we're rating, reviewing, and discussing the monsters of Temtem. So, um, Remind me after we record that I have a quorum idea, that I, a pitch that I want to run by you. Oh, boy. Okay, great. Where else can we hear you? Uh, you can also... Oh. <laughs> God, I'm on another podcast. Uh, you can hear me on uh, Talking Marketing, which is uh, the American Marketing Association Boston Chapters uh, Once Every Other Month podcast where we interview marketing professionals, CEOs, and cool people in the industry and talk about what makes them tick. And we have some really cool episodes lined up. I looked at a spreadsheet today that had episodes lined up to, and I quote, August 2023. Nice. So we're playing the game, so to speak. Uh, yeah, that's what I got. Nice. You can hear me on a video game podcast called Super Smash Echoes that I do with my friend Justin. It's a monthly video game book club type of thing where we play games that are related to the Super Smash Brothers franchise in some way. So check us out there, Super Smash Echoes. We like to end our podcast here with chatsums, which are little delicious bite-sized recommendations, be they media, 
experiences or life experiences or whatever that we think you can uh, snack on between now and next time. So, Alan, what is your chatsum for the folks for this week? Living. I okay. actually have a, I have more I have more of a chatsum. It's been teased a little bit because Logic is corny as hell, but I do really love the music video for his song 1-800-273-8255 with Alessi Carr and Khalid. It's a really beautiful music video, and uh, it's a great song. Uh, the current number for the National Suicide Hotline is 988. If you're ever thinking about those things and you want somebody professional to talk you through it, I've called the number before, as previously discussed, and uh, they're doing important work over there. So... We are only able to help so much as a podcast, as two lowly podcasters, but uh, as I've been saying a lot over the course of this episode, uh, we want to see you around, uh, and we, mm-hmm. we value you as a person, regardless of whether you listen or care about us, uh, we care about you. And uh, yeah. again, that number is 988 if you need a professional to talk to. Yeah. What about you? What's your chats? Uh, I would just, first of all, want to second that, everything that you said there. Um, I came in with a fun TV show as my chatsum, so I'm, I'm going to talk about it now. Yeah, no, no, do it. You don't have to apologize to me. I'm I don't apologize. apologizing through my tone uh, to everybody else. So earlier this month, uh, this week, you heard our Should You Watch episode uh, on Flatbush Misdemeanors. And, uh, you know, we were maybe wanting that show to be a little bit more about what it feels like to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so the night we recorded that, Alan and I went and we watched the first episode of a little show called Abbott Elementary. And I've watched a few more episodes since then, since we shared that that lovely time together watching that. Um, and it's, hey, did you like Parks and Rec? Was that a fun show for you? Do you wish it was at an elementary school? Because that's what it is and it's it's fun it's great emmy Emmy award-winning as of last night oh congratulations quinta brunson won an emmy she's wonderful on that show that's it's a very fun show uh so i would highly recommend abbott elementary as just kind of like a put it on have a nice time see people be kind to each other and be hopeful about things kind of a show and it's a great show to watch with your your very best friend. Oh, yeah. So that's what I got. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for being my scuba instructor and making sure that nothing goes wrong. And thank you all for listening to the chats overs, where sometimes family is a bunch of broken souls wandering the outback together. Peace out. Bye.